these wars were, in my view, totally unnecessary. The writ of habeas corpus can be used to free someone being held in the military against their will. Welcome back to Breaking Cadence, insights from a modern-day conscientious objector. I'm your host, Rosa Del Duca. On this episode, we delve into the law surrounding war resistors, thanks to the attorney who took my conscientious objector case back in 2006. As a major experience when you're you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, it's, it really is life-changing. That's what sort of motivates me to want to help people, to see that you know, that individual will turn into someone so much better you know, because they've acted on their conscience. Before we dive in, let's time travel again and set the stage. We're going back to March of 2006. On the lighter side, Philip Seymour Hoffman is still alive. He wins Best Actor for Capote at the Academy Awards. Reese Witherspoon wins Best Actress for Walk the Line. On the radio, it's Hips Don't Lie by Shakira, Crazy by Narles Barkley, and James Blunt's You're Beautiful. Bush is still president. The Senate just voted to renew the Patriot Act, the U.S. military announced that it would close Abu Ghraib prison and move prisoners elsewhere. In actuality, it wouldn't close for another eight years. By this time, I'd graduated college and moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd been waiting and waiting for an answer from the Army about my CO application. The head of Cal Poly's ROTC department called me one day and told me the decision was in, but he wouldn't tell me anything over the phone. I had to pick it up in person. I remember the officers kind of ganging up on me in the office, and the major told me that my application was denied. He said it was my obligation to commission as an officer in the United States Army. If I didn't accept a commission, I was in breach of contract and could be subject to involuntary active duty as an enlisted soldier. For you general audience listeners, enlisted soldiers are just the normal the normal grunts. There's a chain of command for enlisted people from private on up to first sergeant, but all enlisted people are lower than officers who are commissioned. The major told me my only other option was to volunteer for active duty. There was no way in hell I was going to be an officer or a full-time soldier in a war I saw as illegal and morally reprehensible, so I didn't do anything. I went back to the Bay Area and was essentially a wall. I'd asked my National Guard commanders where to start drilling after the move, and they didn't answer me. My lawyer during college referred me to Stephen Collier, a lawyer in San Francisco. I didn't know much about him then, and when I went to meet with him again for this project, I realized I still didn't know a whole lot about him, other than housing law is his main focus, and he had some experience with CO cases. He was kind of a hotshot, actually representing one of the first, if not the first, conscientious objector to the war in Iraq, and uh, another Marine who changed his mind about joining as soon as he got to boot camp. But let's hear it from the man himself. If you could just tell me a little bit about you and where you went to law school, maybe how you ended up here, um, what got you interested in military law, and why, like, why you even would take a case like mine. Okay, thanks. So... Uh, I moved to California as a senior in college. I went to Cal. I um, was interested in community organizing, and I did community organizing for a healthcare reform group in Oakland for about three or four years. Um, 
because of funding problems and difficulty and having stability in that work, I decided to go to law school and see if I could get a law degree that would help me with my advocacy. So I went to law school at Golden Gate University School of Law, graduated from law school in 1986, uh, took and passed the California bar that year and started practicing law as a housing attorney at the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, which is what I do full time. Uh, when the first Gulf War happened, it was the invasion of Kuwait. You may recall there was a call-up of about two hundred to 300,000 reservists um, and also National, Guards, um, National Guardsmen. At that time, uh, there was a huge sort of need for attorneys or, or, or advocates to advocate on behalf of reservists because most of the reservists who were being called up were in the ready reserve, which are people who thought they were no longer in the military. Because, as, as you know, if you're in, there was, you, you have your, whatever your enlistment agreement is, you have your active duty, plus you, um, at the end of that time, you still have a reserve duty obligation. Um, that's usually another four years, but you don't have to drill. It's not a drilling reserve like Yeah, and you really don't you. expect to get called up when right. you have been, like, this already discharged pretty much. Right. So you actually do get a discharge paper after your active duty. And then these people were all being called up, and there was a huge need for information and assistance to them. Many of them were opponents of the war. They were objectors. Many of them satisfied the criteria for conscientious objection. Um, often they would have hardship. The National Lawyers Guild, of which I'm a member, has a military law task force. It's a nationwide organization of military lawyers and counselors. And we did trainings on military law to train people who did not know military law in order to sort of step into this needed role of assisting people who are being called into service. So I helped put on some trainings, mobilized a lot of people, like, I mean, probably 50 to 100 people in the Bay Area who were willing to do counseling and take on cases. And the war ended in 72 hours. <laughs> As a refresher, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, it was a full-scale international crisis. The U.S. formed this coalition of 35 countries to respond. The fighting started with an air campaign, five weeks of bombing in January of 1991. But the ground war lasted just three days. Saddam had warned that the ground war was going to be the mother of all battles. He had the fourth largest army in the world at the time, and many were veterans of the Iraq-Iran war. But in actuality, coalition forces did not have a problem driving them out quickly. And there was some, work, some benefit to it, but mostly it was unneeded at that time. But I learned it and um, continued to do it sort of as a pro bono Avocation, uh, mostly around, after the Gulf War, mostly av around issues of lesbians and gays in the military, because we had the outright ban. And then when Clinton became president, uh, he turned in he, he developed the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, which again resulted in a lot of people being uh, discharged from the military, or having to be in the closet. So representing those people in um, what to do if they are outed, if they were caught, 
those kind of things. Then when the second Gulf War occurred, the Iraq War, that's when, I, again, I got more involved and represented a lot of people who were resisting or objecting to that war or who just needed counseling. And that's, I think, when I saw you. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much it meant to me like that you mm-hmm. that you took my case pro bono. And I mean, it sounds like you did that for a lot of people. Like, uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine that, you know, housing law brings in a lot of money. I mean, what, is it just um, a passion of yours or something that you feel strongly about? Like, well, how, how or why did you offer so many people this amazing oh. gift of well, thank you. Um, I, one of the reasons is, is my parents were prisoners of war. Um, they were prisoners of war during World War II uh, in uh, the Philippines. They're um, prisoners of the Japanese uh, military and, so, and civilians. And so um, they've, they've always had that sort of connection about how war um, is, you know, sort of the worst thing that we can do <laughs> and, and that we need to object to it and fight it when it's... Um, uh, the, the, even the least unnecessary war is, is a terrible thing. So these wars were, in my view, totally unnecessary. In this second year of Donald Trump's presidency, With the war in Afghanistan still not officially over and troops still in Iraq despite a so-called end to that war, it's easy to have a defeatist attitude about a lot of things. But it's people like Collier that restore my faith in humanity. Here's someone who's devoted his life to helping low-income tenants and war resistors. By the way, I interviewed Collier at his office in the Tenderloin. It's a neighborhood of San Francisco known for rampant homelessness and drug use. It's also a little noisy, and some of that noise bleeds into the rest of the conversation. I remember when one of the first things you asked me when I walked into your office, you said, um, "Do you, you know what habeas corpus is, don't you? And, and I had this little, like, I should know what that means. And I could tell you, like, oh, my gosh, she doesn't even know what habeas corpus <laughs> is. But um, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like a, a lot of people don't, and they don't understand how important it is, too. Well, it's a great, um, it's called a writ, which is a legal word for, like, a pleading or a lawsuit that is brought against the government when the government is keeping someone detained against their will. It's an old common law writ and it's you know protected by our constitution as well the power of it is it's typically brought when someone's held prisoner against their will or unlawfully for example if they're being held uh, pursuant to unlawful evidence or unlawfully seized evidence you can bring a writ of habeas corpus but the military in the military um, people who are in military service and under the jurisdiction of the military are considered to be uh detained or held against their will by the government. And so the writ of habeas corpus can be used to free um, someone being held in the military against their will, like you were, because you had filed your your conscientious objection claim and it was denied. Yeah, it really did feel like that. Like I was being like kind of mm-hmm. trapped in this spot mm-hmm. and I couldn't get out because I 
you know, rebutted it and then they denied it again. And then that's it. That's the end of the road. So you can go to federal court and file the, the lawsuit, which is called a writ of habeas corpus. And it's a difficult standard, though, to prevail against the government. The, the petitioner, you or any other, other service member, has to show that there was no factual basis at all for the government's decision. It's a very difficult standard. And the military denies habeas corpus claims for various reasons. The most typical one is they don't believe the service member, that the service member has a deeply held um, objection to all to war in all forms based on religion or uh, philosophical beliefs. Because the military often just says we don't believe you, as long as they have some basis to show that you're, that you're not believed, like you said something on your application that's different than the interview or contradicted in the interview, to something that can cast doubt on your credibility. If they have something like that, then the writ will probably be denied by this court because there is a factual basis. In other words, that you're not to be, they're legitimate in, believe, in thinking that you're not to be believed because there's a factual basis to make that determination. You said something differently at your interview than in the application or vice, or, right. or even a support letter said something about you that's different than your application. It's very important to make sure the application is done correctly, not just the, the legal proceeding thereafter. Really, the, that's the, the factual basis that's generated through the application process is all I have to work with. So I can't do a good job if you haven't done a good job to begin with. Right. And I, I remember you saying, you know, that I did have a strong case because mm -hmm. all that stuff matched up. But mm -hmm. and the, you know, the chaplain and the psychiatrist even said that I was a convincing CO. But mm -hmm. the investigating officer, which I mean, it really seems like it's their mission to get your case thrown out or denied, basically said that I enlisted fraudulently because I like hid this depression, which I'd never been seen by a doctor for depression when I was before I enlisted and I mean if my crime is to be depressed by my role in war like that's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous right. um, so you talked a little bit about like it's really hard um, to win those cases because I remember you saying that there wasn't a lot of precedent at that time you didn't know if if that happened whether they would let me go or not right so actually I, I had one I have one two of them um, during the Iraq war one in Alaska Federal District Court and one here in, in San Francisco. Um, there weren't a lot of precedent, but then the people who've done this work back in the 60s during the Vietnam War said that once the war started becoming unpopular, the federal court decision started breaking in the favor of the service members. So they would grant habeas corpus relief for service members in the Vietnam War once the war started becoming unpopular. And we found the same thing happening with the Iraq War. Is that early on it wasn't they weren't they weren't being granted, but later on um, they started the, the court started granting them, and so a number of people did get out that way. A big legal question I've had is: the military must have known about the writ of habeas corpus all along. So by denying so many legitimate CO cases, they were almost daring the other side to take it as far as a habeas corpus proceeding in federal court. Why go to all that trouble? Here's what Collier had to say. One, did they not care? Or did they assume since they had the power that most people wouldn't get a lawyer and fight it? Or did they 
did they think that the courts would be on their side so they could get away with it anyway? It depends on sort of what level. Certain services, the Army has a review board for COs. Like the Marines, it's just reviewed by the Commandant of the Marine Corps. But for the Army, there's an actual conscientious objector review board. The other thing about a writ of habeas corpus is you have to exhaust your administrative remedies. So your remedies on the, the, in the military have to be exhausted, which means you have to take it all the way up to the highest level before you can go to court and seek relief. With the review boards and with the Commandant of the Marine Corps or whatever, the highest level of the military's branch is reviewing these applications before they go to court, they're going to be told if, oh, well, by the way, your decision is, was reversed by the federal district court in you know, New York or in um, San Francisco. So they will learn um, that they need to sort of comply with the law, and they have military, the military law advisors also. However, I think at the beginning with the, the, the denials like the investigating officer or the recommendation the investigating officer made to whoever is the commander for that service member, at that level, I think it's just that sort of gung-ho military um, patriotic mindset that says... Well, you're not a conscious objector, you're just a coward. And so the reason you want to get out is because you're a coward, not because you're a conscientious objector. And that, that mindset that all conscientious objectors are cowards and there's not sort of true conscientious objector versus someone who's making it up. They just classify people all in that category and deny them. I think that's what, at that level, is sort of what's motivating the decision. seem to take it so personally like it was a, a, an attack on them personally mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it like it wasn't about them at yeah, all right right well it does it does to a certain degree challenge make them think about well is it christian to go and kill people right obviously you want to sort of make the argument that it's it's against your conscience to kill people without trying to make every everyone who kills people a bad person strategically or tactically that's what you want to do to try to win your case you want your even people who don't agree with you to yeah which is hard to do when you don't take that religious line that was one weakness of my cases i you know wasn't religious in the in the organized religion Mm -hmm. traditional sense you know i might have been a little bit spiritual but Mm -hmm. but i based my application just on you know how i was raised by my mom and you know Mm -hmm. just like what everyone teaches every child mm-hmm. you know like you share and you treat people how you'd like to be treated and you know, fairness and all that stuff and when i talked to you last you said you got to check out the military law task force and its journal and and you wrote in there that yeah you had a much better chance if you base your application on religion than just your morals and um why do you think that religion is still the gold standard of morality because I mean in a way the the kind of um, dogma attached to some religions like is kind of what you know we were fighting in the Middle East anyway like the idea of jihad like a holy mm-hmm. war 
Right. That's a good question. I think, first of all, legally, it, it doesn't have to be traditional religion. The point in the article was that, nevertheless, that's still more likely to get you a, a discharge than a non-religious or more of a spiritual or just a moral basis. And that, I think, is just the prejudice of the, the people reviewing these things, right? They, they, they believe people who are more traditional in their beliefs and they understand those better than those who aren't. The, the tricky part is that except for sort of Quakers and Mennonites and potentially some Buddhists, there's the religions don't prohibit people from killing people in war. It's, it's not against their dogma. And there is also case law that says that a religious war, like your willingness to participate in a religious war, like a jihad, does not mean that you aren't a conscientious objector. So you can espouse sort of that kind of belief in the, the true sense of, I mean, I'm not that familiar with the Quran, but the true sense of what I understand is a jihad is not people going out there with guns and killing each other. It's, it's a more spiritual kind of quest. The, the law does say that that kind of, that a jihad in that true sense does not, is not incompatible with conscientious objection. Yeah, I remember reading that part mm -hmm. of the application being really confused. Right. Um, the exact wording in the directive is, quote, a belief in a theocratic or spiritual war between the powers of good and evil does not constitute a willingness to participate in, quote, war within the meaning of this directive, end quote. So uh, at 23 years old, to me, that was about as clear as mud. But um, again, I didn't base my application on religious grounds. I based it on morals that I developed um, otherwise. Do you think uh, that that might change? Um, America's getting less less religious in that like more young people don't necessarily identify with one of the right. standard religions. I mm -hmm. mean, do you feel like that might trickle its way into the military? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, and most... I most all my cases. Well, I had a Buddhist, and I had um, a Christian, but uh, but they weren't. They didn't have like a long history of religion, in the sense of um, organized religion backing them. It wasn't like oh, he, this person went to temple all his life, or this person went to church all his life. They were just their beliefs were based in that, but they weren't. You know the kind of classic, uh, very spiritual religious person who doesn't want to participate in war because they've been trained that way. I mean, the, the statute does say religious training and/or belief. So you still you still have to talk a little bit about some sort of religious or spiritual training. It's helpful, but most of these cases they're won not by people who have a lot of religious training. I guess this kind of goes back to power. Um, when you apply to be a CEO, they make you jump through all of these hoops. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like requiring that there be a prosec prosecutory or like a prosecutor in the process, mm -hmm. but not requiring anything that would aid in 
the CO's defense. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, they wouldn't even let me record my hearing that my interview with the investigating officer um, because I couldn't have anyone else there. You know, like, you should be able to that. record it. I mean, there's, that was a violation not to let you do it. Yeah, there's there's no. It's considered a civilian procedure. It's not. You don't have a right to counsel because it's not a criminal proceeding. What we do is try to prepare you as much as possible for the for it. Um, support support people like you in the process. But um, you're right; you don't have an attorney there who can sort of advocate for you. Right. And a lot of people I, they probably just try to go it on their own, right. or they don't have the resources or the connections. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, I mean, I didn't even know that there were people out there to help me, like the GR Rights Hotline or mm-hmm. lawyers that would take the case, until I started Googling it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just uh, like as a lawyer it seems a little predatory to, you know, to target people when they're young, um, and then they're in, when you join, it's all about the responsibilities and the roles that you must fill. They never once inform you about if you happen to change your mind. Like <laughs> this is the time of your life where you will probably grow the mo- most right. as a person, but don't change your mind about <laughs> this decision. Because uh, there's no way out. You know, they they don't even inform you that like, the, you know, right. that there is some kind of choice. Um, as a lawyer, what is, I mean, how does that strike you? Well, I mean, it's it's not an it's not it's not a democracy, a military, right? It's a hierarchy. I mean, if we accept the concept of what a military is and what it does, I'm not sure we want it to be real democratic. You know, that there's a debate about that. Obviously, it could use a little more freedom, but but I'm not sure sort of just letting anybody leave when they want makes a lot of sense uh, uh, you know um, but that's assuming you believe that we should have military the the thing that as a lawyer is that that we have to tell them is we find in places in military law where you can say like this person's changed or they sh- never should have joined you know this is not the kind of person that should be that you as a commander really want in the military that not not everyone's fit to be in the military and when you put it that way to a lot of commanders they're like fine this person is just going to cause me a headache i don't want them in my unit and so that's one way we sort of deal with that um but the whole structure um is an oppressive structure you know it's the 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 generals don't get killed on the front lines you know what i mean (laughs) it's not uh it, it's I don't mean to be flippant, but it's it's an oppressive structure, and uh, the the real goal is to keep people from going in if we can. And unfortunately, the way our the incentives for going in, especially for people who don't have any job opportunities, are really high. So. two cases that you won, the two habeas corpus cases, mm-hmm. cases, but could you talk a little bit more about one of them and maybe... Okay. Um, they were both um, decisions in federal court, so they're public cases. One was a reservist, Zabala, realized he was a conscious objector, you know, realized it during training. It sort of found its roots in his sort of Buddhist upbringing. 
The LA Times did a feature on Zabala's case back in 2007 when the federal judge ordered the Marine Corps to let him go. But his story starts in 2002. That's when an 18-year-old Robert Zabala signed up for eight years in the Marine Corps Reserve. Eight years uh, does seem odd to me. I think his contract was probably like mine. Six years active drilling and then two inactive, basically, after you're discharged. In any event, he went to boot camp and was appalled by the bloodlust, which included new recruits being shown pictures of dead Iraqis. That's how he put it in his CO application. He talks about his informal study of Buddhism, too, and his belief in the sanctity of life. It took him two years after joining to file his application, so now we're at 2004, and according to the LA Times, his officers did recommend he get a discharge, but a general was responsible for the denial because Abala's objection to war wasn't based entirely on religion. I met with him like I met with you, drafted the paperwork. He was present. He wasn't the, the habeas corpus petition is mostly done on the papers because it's based on the, the administrative record being what happened in the military. So we had to point out that every single determination the military made was, had no basis in fact. <laughs> so there was nothing that would have been a legitimate reason to deny his claim that had any basis in fact. So it was all kind of like he must not be telling the truth, but they couldn't point to anything or their own prejudices about or misunderstandings about his religion or his beliefs. Looking at the timeline, it took another three years for the case to work its way up to the judge who finally ruled in Zabala's favor. The Times quoted Collier as saying, quote, When sincere objectors to war won't fight, the military has got to follow the law and release them. And we've got a kind of empowered quote from Zabala, too, who was by this time 23. He said, quote, Hopefully, this will help other Marines out there who feel the same way as I do, but don't know how to articulate it. I think this is a big part of the intimidation about a CO application in general. I mean, you you really have to know how to articulate it. I like how he puts that. Articulate these really complex feelings that have been brewing. That seems um, like on the one hand, kind of badass, and on the other hand, nerve-wracking. I mean, do you remember whether he... Yeah, he was nerve-wracking, but he also had a lot of... He, he he trusted his own um, sense of what he was doing was right, was the right thing to do. Yeah. So that was good for him. So when when I was last here, and I, I think maybe even when I first met you, um, you, you said that the government was always trying to disrupt the work that you do uh, on CO cases. And, for, and I remember you saying that for all you knew, that I could be from the FBI. <laughs> and it seems like, especially under this administration, it's... Um, it's like the sense that they don't want to play fair. They don't want to follow mm -hmm. their own rules. And um, Can you talk about maybe the challenges and concerns when you are ready and willing to take on the federal government in court? Yeah, well, the, um, there, there, you have to have the sense of being a fighter, that, that, you're, that what you're doing is right, that there is laws that protect us, um, and that if the courts aren't willing to enforce those laws, then we need to make them do it by, by fighting harder, by doing, making appeals. But we can't take the 
the position that oh like a cynical position that oh we're going to lose so we don't do the fight because uh, that way then it's self-fulfilling but that that's easy for me because i've always been that way the other the, the bigger challenge for me is is convincing clients that they should feel that way because their it's their life is on the line i mean i don't really think i'm going to be uh thrown in jail i always advise partly because it might you might be from the fbi i always advise my clients that um you know lying to the F, to an investigator military investigators or fbi or any um, government investigator lying to the government is a crime you can be arrested for that even if you never committed a crime other than that so for example when someone is a wall or Uh, unauthorized absence from their base the military will send someone out to look for them and they'll knock on the door of their last known address and the person answering the door may not be the service member it may be their mother and the mother is worried and says no he's not here but he is there or no he's not living here and he does live there and she's covering up for him so she just committed a crime by lying to him the government even if the person who is on authorized absence may have a defense and it, it's not committed any crime but the act of lying to the investigator is itself a crime so trying to make sure that people understand their rights that they don't have to open the door that if they do open the door they should tell the truth they should open the door or they should insist on a warrant things like that just sort of educating um, service members to know their rights and they're not they don't have the same sort of rights as they do as civilians do but um, educating civilians to know that the family members have there's no jurisdiction of the military over them so they don't they don't have to cooperate they just can't misrepresent when I joined ROTC. So you've seen a lot of the cases go through. I mean, what do you think or What do you think happens to people who are denied and they, uh, they're they stuck in the organization feeling deeply against it or they have to accept that dishonorable discharge? Do you feel like it's something that is really hard to get over and that, that like really affects the rest of their life? Sometimes, uh, you know, I, well, I'll give you a case, Stephen Funk. So he was, he was a conscious objector but he was um, activated um, before his application was processed. He knew he was going to be activated. He realized he couldn't go. He started developing the, pro- the application, but his call date was before he could really have it adjudicated. So he made a decision based on you know on me helping him that he was going to he was an objector. He wasn't going to go to war. He was then UA. UA means unauthorized absence. 
And here are a few more essential details about Stephen Funk. He signed a six-year contract with the Marines about five months after 9-11, so early 2002. He's a classic case of someone who never belonged in the military. Even as a high schooler, he was pretty liberal and pretty active in social and political causes. Not a violent guy. Researching his case, it looks like his misgivings started pretty early in boot camp, and his unit must have been one of the first activated to go to Iraq. Almost exactly a year after joining, he left base because his unit was due to ship out and his CO application hadn't been processed yet. He's known as the first enlisted person to go public with his conscientious objector case. He turned himself in, so we do that a lot, fair amount too in this. We, we turn people in who, who are missing in uh, our I mean, unauthorized absence or AWOL because they can't resolve that status unless they return to the jurisdiction of the military. So turn, he turned himself in, did a press conference, did not wear his uniform when he did that because that's another basis for court-martial is, you know, wearing a uniform and expressing the opinion, your opinions because then they're considered the, that you're doing it as, as a member of the military. After the press conference, he changed in my car, put on his uniform, turned himself in. Then he was court-martialed for his unauthorized absence, and he was charged with desertion, uh, what we call short desertion, which is avoiding hazardous duty, essentially. In other words, a call to the the military theater. So there's two kinds of desertion. One is like you're on the war field and you run away, like Bergdahl, or what I think it's his name. Yeah, Bo Bergdahl. Bo Bergdahl. The other kind of desertion is you skirt hazardous duty. And that's what he was charged with. Had up to five years, like a felony, five-year um, jail time maximum, you know, dishonorable discharge. Let's pause for just a moment and let this sink in. What's most interesting to me about Funk is he's been quoted as saying, if I can be recruited, anyone can, meaning he had no interest in the military before a recruiter persuaded him to join. Articles say Funk's recruiter caught him at a time when he was feeling kind of lost. He'd graduated high school but didn't know what his next step was, he was depressed, and the recruiter sells him on the idea of being part of an important team, gaining confidence and leadership and discipline skills. A year later, a war starts in the shadiest of ways. Rumors Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. Weapons inspectors who can't find these so-called weapons are kicked out so the war can begin. You are 20 years old. You want to have nothing to do with it, so you declare the truth. You're a conscientious objector. Then you stand your ground about not going anywhere, not having anything to do with a dirty war, and the next thing you know, you could be spending the next five years in a military prison. He was court-martial. I represented him in the court-martial. And we beat the desertion charge because the Marines had a policy anyone who had filed a CO application would not be sent to the, the war theater, wouldn't be sent out, would be kept stateside. So we said he had that understanding, and therefore he never had this specific intention, because it's a specific intent crime, 
which is all about the law of crimes, <laughs> which is that you have to not only do the act, which is not go, but you have to have an intention to desert. And since he understood that he wasn't a deserter because the Marines wouldn't send him, even if he was wrong in his belief, if the jury finds that he actually believed that, even if the belief is not correct, then he would be acquitted. He wouldn't have the, the necessary mental state to be convicted of desertion. So he beat the desertion charge on that, which is the, the major charge. But he was found guilty of unauthorized absence because that's a general intent crime, meaning you're just, you don't go back to your base. So he did get six months, I think, in Camp Lejeune. Funk served five months of his six-month sentence in the Camp Lejeune Marine Corps Base Brig. During his time behind bars, anti-war activists protested outside the gates. There were rallies across the country and even overseas. He was kind of famous, and he still is. Turns out that peace organization I told you I joined last episode, About Face Veterans Against the War, well, Funk co-founded it back in 2004. At that time, it was called Iraq Veterans Against the War. And he served six months, got more letters and more mail than anybody there, like combined, <laughs> more than anybody, all the others combined, um, and then was released and was out of the military. What is your sense? Is there hope for the future that young people won't get trapped in long contracts or that people who you know, change their mind and decide that you know, they don't want to have a role in war, that they have a conscientious objection to it? It feels like there's more resources now, like with the internet um, and people speaking out. And like, There seems to be a lot of activism kind of everywhere. Right. Do you feel like it's a hopeful future? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to feel hopeful about our current world. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, I think... The work done in the during the Iraq War really, again, solidified that that conscientious objection is still alive and well, and is still upheld by the courts. The, the efforts to amend the law that we've seen have been very much tweaking minor stuff. You know, who knows with Trump, they may try to, but you know, say, you know, get rid of the whole basis. But I don't think that's likely to happen. And I think, in a large part. The military doesn't want conscious objectors in the military. You know, they'd rather they're not there. They they believe they're cowards. They don't want them. So it's not like this is a big push to keep people in who are conscious objectors. And, and, you know, unfortunately, there's still plenty of people who are willing to join. And we have sort of an economic draft, right? The people who don't have other options end up joining. I, I think if we had... A, a true draft, in other words, like like we had in the Vietnam War, where you know conscription of all eighteen-year-olds, then we would there may be an effort to really dial back conscientious objection because there would be tens and hundreds of thousands of people probably <laughs> seeking it. But I don't see. I think the the military has pretty much given up on the draft. I think there's been talk about it, but I think they're happy with the volunteer army. They feel like they have enough. Well, thank you. Sure. You're welcome. My pleasure. Is there anything you want to add or anything we didn't cover? No, other than, you know, they, they like for Stephen Funk, that was a life-changing event. He's totally changed his life. He was a very timid, shy, painfully shy person. 
it's now he's, he's sort of out, much more of an activist, much more self-assured. You know, it's part of, as a, as a major experience when you're, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, it's, it really is life-changing, and I think that's, that's what sort of motivates me to want to help people, is to see that, you know, that individual will turn into someone so much better, you know, because they've acted on their conscience. Thank you to my husband, Nicholas Leiter, for the babysitting and support needed to get this episode done. Thanks to Jason Baum, Leila Del Duca, and the Ooligan Hooligans for giving this a first listen. And of course, a huge thank you to Stephen Collier for everything he's done for me, for War Resisters, for Tenants in Need in San Francisco. Now, Steve mentioned Bo Bergdahl, and there is a fantastic and fascinating podcast profile of him and the high-stakes series of events he set in motion. Season 2 of Serial, titled Dust One, delves into what happened after Bergdahl grabbed a few essentials and walked off his army post in remote eastern Afghanistan into the open desert. These are expert storytellers, so if you're at all interested in the topic, check it out at SerialPodcast.org. For more info about me or Breaking Cadence the Book, go to rosadelduca.com or ooligan.pdx.edu. Next time on Breaking Cadence, Deja Vu. I talk to Vietnam veteran and peace activist Gregory Ross about serving in America's most unpopular war, the last war we fought using the draft. It didn't take me but a couple weeks to figure out if somebody didn't know I had gone to Nam, they didn't need to know. It wasn't good for me. In many people's minds, including mine, there was no such thing as a conscientious objector after the Vietnam conflict. It's perhaps the military's best-kept secret. It's all next time on Breaking Cadence, Insights from a Modern-Day Conscientious Objector. She moves, she moves.